Having kids is awesome, but raising them can be difficult and filled with ups and downs. Challenges are seemingly everywhere, whether they're medical, social, financial, cultural, or otherwise. And sometimes, the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join us as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. Hello again, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Les. It's been a bit of a tough week. I worked a shift in the emergency department on Monday, uh, came home to a daughter with abdominal pain. Uh, in the end, decided to take her in to my workplace, whereupon one of my colleagues decided she needed an abdominal ultrasound to rule out appendicitis. And we discovered to our surprise that while she didn't have appendicitis, she did have an intra-abdominal mass. So suffice it to say that generated some concern and there was a period of uh, some high anxiety following that uh, before we had another test, uh, another scan, which suggested that the mass was benign and uh, she subsequently had surgery to have it removed and thankfully that looks to be the case and she's home uh, and uh, recovering well. As you can imagine, the word relief doesn't begin to cover our emotions in the aftermath of what transpired this week because it's a scenario that could have turned out differently. And for some kids, for some parents, those scenarios indeed do turn out differently. And today on our show, we're going to look at just that. When a parent's worst fears are realized, when the news is terrible, and then beyond that, the most unimaginable occurrence, the loss of a child. We interview a mom named Cheryl as she shares her experience with her daughter, who passed after a terrible diagnosis. We look at what that experience was like, uh, that experience that's unfathomable to most of us. How did her family navigate that journey? How did they survive? What did they learn? And what can we learn from their experience? It's a difficult topic, hard to contemplate, and consequently often avoided because it is so difficult. But I don't think we should avoid it because there is so much to learn. I'll be right back with my conversation with Cheryl as she discusses her little Emma and how she changed their world, and by extension, how she can change our world. Welcome to the podcast, Cheryl. Thank you. Uh, so glad you could join us. I know this was a big ask for me um, to have you come on our show, but uh, such a important topic, and I know an emotional one, obviously. But maybe before we get to that, uh, Cheryl, could you just give us a bit of background about yourself, who you are, what do you, what do, you do today? Sure. Um, so I am the acting director at Child Development Day Homes here in Calgary. Um, so monitoring uh, day homes that are licensed throughout the city. 
Um, I also play an active role in the Alberta Family Child Care Association, advocating for uh, quality care for children. Hugely important and impactful. Must be very meaningful work. Very. I'm very passionate about uh, children and child care and um, quality and rights for children. Right. And, and you have a family of your own. I do. Yes, I have three children at home. You have uh, boys, girls? I have a 32-year-old son, a 30-year-old son, a 22-year-old daughter. It's a busy time, but yeah. fun. Well, that, of course, is not, uh, that's not all of your children, which is really why you're here. Um, and uh, just for our listeners, uh, for context, um, I met you uh, roughly 23 years ago uh, when your little Emma was a baby. And I was a fresh-eyed uh, newbie doctor, a resident doctor in pediatrics. The experience I had with you and your daughter was really the very first time that for me as a doctor in training was the very first time I was confronted with the reality of a serious diagnosis in a child. So maybe let's start there. What can you tell us about uh, little Emma, about uh, what happened back in that day? All right. So um, Emma was our third child, uh, the first little girl. And she was a, a perfect little baby. So my boys previously had colic and cried a lot and um, were hard to settle. And she was just uh, um, very peaceful, always smiling, happy, ate well, all of that, um, until around two months old. And at that stage, all of a sudden, things really changed. And she was crying all the time. Um, holding her wouldn't soothe her. She wasn't nursing very well. Um, I took her to multiple doctors trying to figure out what was wrong. Um, and a lot was was put back, you know, that maybe I needed to go to a breastfeeding feeding clinic to see that I'm feeding her properly or, um, you know, it's colic or, um, you know, some of those other typical things that would happen. Um, as a third time mom, I knew that wasn't what it was. You can sense right. when something's different. And I knew that wasn't what it was. And I kept persisting and going to different doctors to find out. Um, and it wasn't until we were out camping and she was crying and I just stopped and really observed her rather than picking her up right away and just had a look at her for a moment before picking her up. And I noticed that her left side of her body wasn't moving. So the right side, the arm and leg were moving while she was crying, but the, the left wasn't. So it wasn't, and, move, it wasn't moving, but there was otherwise nothing obvious to see. No, well, nothing obvious to see. And then I did notice that her pupils were different. Hmm. Um, and so we, that was um, at about, oh, it was middle of the night and we got in the car and we drove to the children's right away. You went to the emergency department? Went to the emergency department and we were whisked through in a very short period of time. And that's when we knew something was very wrong because yeah. we didn't have to wait. Sure. And so it was just immediate. And then how long did it take, you know, on that fateful early morning, how long did it yeah. take before you and your husband found out what the issue was? Right. Within a few hours, we were told it was a mass in her shoulder. Yeah. Um, at that time with shock, I, we weren't sure, what do you mean a mass? What does yeah. that mean? What's going on? Sure. Um, can you take it out? You know, it was yeah. what's happening. Um, it was several... Um, days later, like with after having a biopsy done before we could find out what it was that it was cancerous. Wow. 
Um, but then it was weeks after to find out what kind of cancer because they didn't know it was a really rare form. And uh, so they that time waiting in hospital to figure out what is our protocol, what are we doing next was really hellish um, because we felt very helpless that here she was literally dying in front of us. We could, she wasn't eating. She was, um, you know, losing weight and she's so tiny um, and we could, and was in pain and was crying, but we couldn't do anything to help her. So we, um, you know, it was just that constant, advocating and fighting to get some response, get some answers, get something going. The not knowing must have been horrific. It was really, really horrific. And at that time, you know, I didn't know much about cancer. I didn't know there were different, you know, protocols of how you handle different cancers. I thought chemotherapy was chemotherapy and you just gave it. Um, And so didn't realize they had to wait to see what concoctions had to fit right for what she had. Um, and at the time, um, she did ended up after a couple of weeks, ended up in, um, ICU and then they just, it was a crapshoot. They just put together a protocol and started her on something. In part because the tumor was so rare. What was the tumor yeah, called? It was a rhabdoid sarcoma. Rhabdoid sarcoma. And yeah. just a few cases in the world. At I that understand. time, I was told by the oncologist that there were eight documented cases of it in the wow. world. Um, I don't know what it is now, if it's changed at all, but that was what we were told at the time. It must have seemed so unbelievable to you to have a brand new baby girl and then be talking mm -hmm. about cancer in the same breath as talking about your baby. It it was. And, you know, to think you you start backtracking, it's like, I think I did everything right. I don't smoke. I didn't drink. I don't, you know, um, exercised. I did everything that I should. Um, And so you keep replaying things in your mind. What could I have done different? What, what caused this? Yes. Um, and yeah, so it was, um, not that that would have made a difference really, because what's done is done. She has this right. Um, but it would have tried to help me make sense out of why this was happening and why, um, it occurred for her. And, um, it was one of the oncologists that just kept reassuring that it's nothing you did. It was, you know, one piece of one cell that may have gone wrong in development, and this is what's happened. Yeah. Um, it happened to coincide with her two-month immunization. Yeah. Um, that that's when everything really took a downturn. I don't believe that that caused it. I right. I honestly don't. Um, I've had many people say, oh, it's because of that. Absolutely not. Yes. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I don't believe that. That's well, what it's it a was. Common, it's a common thing. Uh, you know, when things happen to young children, we see it all the time in, in my sandbox, of yeah. course. You know, when kids get sick, it happens to coincide with the time that right. they're also getting their immunizations. You know, the famous, yeah. uh, at least famous to those of us in my field, the famous phrase is correlation does not equal causation. Right. So just because you happen to get mm-hmm. vaccinated... Well, yes. as you say, most likely had nothing to do with the fact right. that she had this malignancy. Yeah. So it must have been just obliterated your world. And I, I understand at that time you had also two small boys. That's right. A 10 year old oh, and seven year old. So they were at 10 home. and seven. Yeah. And then this came and absolutely blew you sideways. Mm-hmm. And somehow you had to keep life going for them as well. That's right. Thank goodness for family. Yeah. Um, my parents just happened to have 
retired right at that time. Um, they were teachers, and so they came and stayed at our house, lived at our house for a month, yeah. um, and helped take care of our boys. Um, then they'd go back to Saskatchewan for a month, and my in-laws who lived in Calgary would take over for a month. Um, it was really important to us that our boys weren't, um, that their routines and their life wasn't disrupted as much as possible. So yeah. they still went to hockey, they still went to school, they did all of their extracurricular um, so that they had they had an outlet that yeah. they still had normalcy in their lives. Um, what became normal for them, though, was to come to the hospital to see me. I remember you were just a constant presence. You lived at the hospital yeah. as far as I, I can remember. I didn't leave um, unless uh, there was a couple of times she had a day pass. Yeah. Um, and her only Christmas, she had um, overnight pass. We were yeah. able to come home. But other than that, I lived at the hospital. So yeah. I slept in a in a reclining chair um, beside her. At that time, they didn't have the the beds the way they have them now at yeah. the hospital. Um, and I refused to leave her side. So if I wouldn't, I'd wait till a family member came to sit with her so I could go have a shower. Yeah. Um, or I'd run down quick to grab some, some food and come back. Um, but I didn't, you know, she was so vulnerable too yeah. i mean with with the chemotherapy the the vomiting all of that and she's an infant um so you you can't leave her yeah. um, at all and the nurses don't have time to be there 24 hours a day yeah. with her yeah. um so you know it was it was important and i wanted to be there of course with her as well i had the fear that there would be a failure to thrive for her yeah. um we didn't see that at all yeah. Um, from her. Um, but there was that worry that she would give up, but she, and then at the, like at the outset, when, uh, there was so much uncertainty, disbelief and uncertainty, mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine the level of anxiety, but you know, when you finally had a diagnosis and a treatment protocol was concocted, so to speak, to start little Emma on and so on, were you given, what were you told about um, prognosis, that sort of thing, or was mm -hmm. there just blanket uncertainty? There was a lot of uncertainty um, at the very beginning because they weren't sure. Um, they they were really transparent, though, I felt, with um, telling us what some things might be for options. So we talked about the possibility of surgery, um, but what that would have entailed because of the complexity of where it was, yes. right, in the brachial plexus, that it would have been... Um, it would have meant skin grafts and, and so many things, yeah. um, and, um, extremely painful and most likely wouldn't work, right. but it was an option if we wanted. And, um, so just talking about things like that, because it was not in a spot for amputation, right. um, about the different types of drugs that there were for the chemo, um, what were some of the side effects that we could expect, um, that would result from it. Um, as we got further along, then it became more apparent about, um, the prognosis that there isn't a cure for it, that, um, she wouldn't survive. Wow. It was a matter of how long did we have her? So she never had surgery. No. She started chemotherapy. Yeah. Initially had somewhat of a response. Right. 
but it didn't. No, there were, you know, we'd have these certain protocols where we think, oh, I really hope this is the one because she seemed to thrive when she had it. So she wasn't sick. She started drinking, um, nursing again or drinking from a bottle again, um, just and was playing, seemed really happy, but that one wasn't working and it just got worse. And so then they had to go back on another protocol, which then really just um, destroyed her nest, you know, really, when you think of the, the vomiting, the, um, the diarrhea, where it felt like it was her, the linings of her bowels were, were coming out as well. Yeah. It was, um, it was horrible to yeah. see that. And the roller coaster, the most brutal roller coaster, I, I again, I can't imagine um, to have periods where she seemed to mm-hmm. rally and to have some hope. Yeah. And then to have it taken away again and through it all to watch what yeah. was happening to her little body. Yeah. And, you know, the the support that we had, though, from the doctors, the nurses, the oncologists, all of it was amazing where yeah. they really listened to us as parents to what we felt was valuable and what we wanted for things. So, for example... Um, you know, she had the feeding tube, um, and, but they were open to me still pumping breast milk and putting that in too, because that was important for me that she still had the breast milk and they were, yeah, that's no problem. Um, you know, that they would, um, that they allowed me to stay in that room 24 hours a day, um, you know, with her and change her room as much as I could to make it more like a nursery than a hospital room. Um, well, how, you know. so, you know, just, uh, let's just, uh, stay there for a second. How, how was Emma through this? Because, you know, I have four children myself, mm-hmm. as you know, and, you know, I remember like it was yesterday for each of my children, that yeah. phase of life when they come home mm-hmm. and they're fresh and new and you have a new human being in your world yeah. that you're responsible for. It's a time of such change and discovery and growth you know, and she was only two months old. And in the mm-hmm. months following that, like any other baby, she still grew mm-hmm. and matured mm-hmm. and had her personality, despite right. all of the trouble, despite right. all of the yeah. suffering, really, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So what was, how, mm-hmm. how was Emma through all of that? What was her little personality I mean, like? the, the resilience of children is, is it's astounding. I mean, it was just hard to, a part of it, I think, is, she didn't know what she had. So she never dwelled on anything. This was all she knew. Right. Um, so, you know, watching her and that's where we gained a lot of our strength from. So she'd be sick and she'd throw up and then she'd turn at you and she'd smile. It's like, okay, that's done. Now are we playing? You know, it was, um, it was just remarkable, you know, to see that she wasn't, you know, thinking and stewing over what her illness was and what's going to happen to me. It was just, that was part of what the experience was and then um we would do whatever we could so her right arm you know was was working fine so she would hold toys with that hand and um hold our hands with it we would you know the all the eye contact and the serve and return that we could do with her still happened um we just tried to make her as comfortable as possible so we had what we called her princess pillow which was really just a big pillow that we put her on so that when we could transfer her for me to carry her to hold her or my husband or my sons um that 
she had as little movement as possible and as little pain so that she was comfortable and that we could still have that moment, um, but without it affecting her negatively. Yeah. Um, so we would just look at things like that, that we could help to do to make her life as best we could. Yeah. So much for us to learn as human beings, as parents yeah. and care providers yeah. from the littlest ones that we tend to. Yeah. With regard to what you just right. pointed out, which is that they, they really live in the moment. It's not like right. she was ticking off her bucket list. I have so many things left to do. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know, utterly innocent and dependent. That's right. Yeah. Profoundly um, inspiring in one sense, but also just so heartbreaking. It It, it is, um, you know, but we thought you have to look at it from where can we go from here? You know, yeah. we, we can't focus on things that um, we have no control over that it was important to focus on things that we did have control over. Yeah. So we had no control that she had cancer, but we do have control over how comfortable yeah. we can make her, sure. how we can interact with her, how we spend our time yeah. with her, and maybe what others can learn from it too. Um, so I'm not sure if you remember, but we had baby pictures of her framed that were kind of inside her crib as well. Yeah. And it was important for us for any medical people that came in to remember her as a person before the patient Correct. so that this is her as an individual this is her as a baby um, and treat her not treat the cancer that happens to belong to this baby yeah but this is emma who happens to have cancer Correct. that emma came first yeah. and i think that um that was important for us and that's something that we carried with us throughout. I mean, when my mom was in hospice, I did the same thing. Yeah. I hung up pictures of my mom um, in the room for staff to realize that's who you're caring for. Um, this is, you know, a, a teacher for 50 years and a grandma and a mom. Yeah. Um, so it was the same thing that, so we've taken those life lessons and, and yeah. moved forward with them. And so now the, the journey in the end wasn't it seemed very, very long for you, obviously. Looking mm -hmm. back on it now, it was a space of, was it seven, seven months? Seven months, yeah. So she she passed away when she was nine months old. How right. far, how far, how deep into that journey were you before you knew irrevocably that this is how it would end? It would mm -hmm. end with Emma passing. Um, I would think probably about four months in, yeah. maybe, um, realizing that, we kept changing the different um, chemotherapies that she was having because nothing was working. Yeah. She'd been in and out of ICU a few times. Um, she'd stopped gaining weight. Um, then when she was gaining, it was just fluid. Um, so she ended up with a chest tube. Yeah, I remember um, so that. So as, as things went on, more things happened. Then she was on oxygen. Um, so as more intervention was needed, the more it became apparent. Um, the social workers, the pain specialists, they were all really um, thoughtful in how they presented materials and information to us. Yeah. Um, you know, they would give us something. For example, I remember the social worker giving us information about um, different funeral homes that... Um, that they, they know they handle children's um, services and, and things, but it was in a sealed envelope, and it was when you're ready, you can open it. Yeah. And um, I didn't open it for a long, long time. And same with the pain specialist coming in to say, 
there's things we can do when we get closer to the time so that she's not um, suffering. And um, when you're ready, we can, we can chat. Yeah. And so it was just planting those seeds without um, forcing things on us that we could deal with when we were ready. Yeah. yeah. And when you got to the, so if you had a few months, really, the last few months, three months or so were really palliative care, mm-hmm. making yeah. her comfortable. Right. But knowing that the end was coming, you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. The end was coming. Mm-hmm. And so what, what were the last, how, how did, what was it? What was it like the last few days or did you know or did it come suddenly? Yeah, and and it was the pain specialist who had said that we will know when we're there. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. And um, you know, when we we could see the um the struggle she was having just to breathe and was clawing at her face to try to catch her breath. Yeah. Um, and that's when we knew this is this is about quality of life, not quantity. Um, that what would another day bring for us? Yep. It's not going to be any better, yep. not for her, not for us. Um, so it was about giving her the quality that she needed. Yeah. And, um, you know, but also knowing too, like as they were giving her some medications to help settle her down with that, they were reassuring us and also that she was, um, she wasn't going to, feel that anxiety, feel that struggle. Um, and, but they did warn us that she would probably not open her eyes again. Right. Um, but she did right before she took her final breath, she opened her eyes and looked at us. Wow. Wow. You know, Cheryl, you and I spoke uh, a few weeks ago about that experience and, you know, as, as, as doctors, um, you know, on the, on our side of the fence, so to speak, particularly those of us who are uh, inexperienced as I was back in that day. And, and you mentioned that, um, you know, and I think this is important to discuss briefly, uh, for those colleagues of mine who are listening and mm-hmm. trainees of, of mine that are listening as a residents and so on. Um, you know, that, that experience when, when Emma passed away, you know, the, the process for us is a physician is summoned to determine whether or not, um, there's a a heartbeat and whether Mm -hmm. or not, in fact, she has died. And so that's what happened with Emma as well. And, and you mentioned that, um, correct me if I have this right, but you mentioned that a resident came, someone you didn't know particularly right. well, yeah. and who didn't because, you know, you, to, to go back to what you said, you know, Emma first, mm-hmm. and then the patient, it was really a very, fairly, it came across you as a very detached clinical, yes, she's gone, rather than mm-hmm. spending time and being present. Right. There wasn't even any eye contact with us yeah. as parents. Um, at the time, it was very hurtful and felt very cold. Yes. Um, but as time passes, um, and you reevaluate and reflect on things, um, I was, I had found out that that was the first patient that that doctor had ever had that passed away. It was the first one for him. And then I'm, and maybe this is to make myself feel better. I don't know. Um, but I feel that maybe that was an emotional time for them. And that's why they couldn't, um, look at us or say anything to us. And they had to leave the room, um, which helped me deal with it better. 
in yeah. knowing that um, it wasn't a purposeful thing, um, right. that maybe that was the way they had to manage their own emotions through that experience. I suspect, I suspect you're right. You know, having been through those years myself, you know, there's a few fortunate human beings that are endowed with deep wells of empathy. <laughs> You know, and empathy is a key part of being a good doctor. Mm -hmm. But empathy for many of us really along, is learned along with many of the other skills that we bring to the table. And I can only imagine how difficult it was for that young doc, mm -hmm. you know, if this was the first time and then a child right. to boot. And, and it brings me to this concept of, you know, the other thing that you and I talked about, which is that um, people don't know what to say, you know, quote unquote, right. don't know what to say. And so people... They either shy away from the whole scenario or they come to you and they say things that are platitudes or frankly mm -hmm. not very helpful. And this is one of the reasons that I, I do think it's so important um, to speak with people like you who have now, you have the perspective of all these years that have gone by and the wisdom that has come along with that and the profound impact of little Emma's time here mm -hmm. with you. Um, to reflect on all of that, you know, how, like, what, what lessons do you have to, you know, members of our community when one of their uh, neighbors or family members or colleagues are confronted with something like this? You know, what to say, what not to say mm -hmm. to a family? To me, you just need to deeply listen to what they're conveying to you. Um, because there is no right thing to say. Um, there's nothing that's going to make it any better. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so, you know, to say it was God's will or God won't throw anything at you that you can't handle. Yeah. Um, you know, you're so strong. I know you can handle this. It's something I could never handle. Um, those are all things that I, we know people are meaning the best when they're saying them. Yeah. But the receiver is maybe not taking them that way. Um, so for me, um, you know, I thought with some of those comments, it's like, well, what kind of a God would torture an infant yeah. and, and take them from you? Yeah. Or, um, you know, why, why do you feel I can handle this and somebody else can't handle it? Do yeah. you think that I'm, um, I loved her less or I'm less empathetic? You know, that those are things that you process at the time, um, even though that's not what the other person meant. Right. Um, and that there really are no words that can help you through it all, but just simply being there um, is what mattered, yeah. is having somebody there to either sit beside you or if you needed to vent and just talk. Yeah. And say something, but without really expecting advice or um, an answer back or just having a hug. Um, yeah. Those were the pieces that really made the difference. Um, for me, even, even past those initial moments, um, and I've really paid attention to this going forward with um, any uh, time a, a friend um, has lost somebody or a family member, um, is that you say what you what you're expecting, not just putting it out there um, because you think you should. So, for example, we um, had a, at that time, um, 23 years ago, the paper, the the newspaper was common, right? So we had an obituary 
for Emma in there. And, and it said in lieu of flowers to contribute to donations to kids cancer care. Yeah. And we put that there because we meant it and we wanted that. Um, and people again, wanting to make you feel better or feeling that they still need to do more. So would, um, send flowers. Of course. And we had, and it's not that we weren't appreciative of the flowers. Um, but my, my whole living room, dining room area was just covered in flowers. And rather than me looking at it as those are signs of caring, I looked at them with dollar signs thinking that is that much more that's wasted in my living room than could be at kids cancer. And, um, and you know, it may seem like a, um, a cruel way of looking at it and an unthankful way of looking at it. But at the time it was, that's what I was focused on. It gave me a new, and my new focus was, okay, she's gone now. Let's do what we can for kids cancer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had to refocus. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I looked at. These flowers are going to be gone in a week. Yeah. But that money could have maybe done some difference yeah. somewhere else. But it takes um, some distance, doesn't it? Before it does. you could really look back and, and, and have uh, really compassion for the people who were trying to reach out and help because they didn't know what else. So people's right. intent. Right. And I know I used to do the same. I would, I would, sure, I'd contribute to where they said, but I'd also want to bring flowers for them to show them I really do care about you. Um, And so I looked at it different going forward. I looked at things differently and really listened to what people wanted and what they, um, because some may really prefer that. And that's, that's okay. It's just listening to what they're saying their needs are yeah. and not thinking you know better or you know more than what they do and yeah. oh you don't really mean that this is what I'm going to do instead yeah. um, you know I had a, a really good friend at the time that kept saying what can I do what can I do and I said just come see me yeah. um, at the hospital and she brought food over every day to my house and she helped looked after my boys and do different things but she never in those seven months came to the hospital to see me. Yeah. And that was really impactful for me. Yeah. That that's all I'd asked. That's all, you know, I appreciated everything else, yeah. but I just really needed her there. children it's a beautiful experience i think most of us who have kids would agree it's a beautiful such an enriching life experience but it comes with risk Mm -hmm. sometimes they get sick and injured and sometimes like little emma they have a terminal illness and they pass away and for those of us who as parents who have never experienced that it's impossible to know the pain of that and a few years ago um do you remember uh, the social worker attached uh, to our ICU of the children's, Kathy? Mm-hmm. You remember Kathy? Yeah. So yeah. Kathy, um, I ran into Kathy in the hallway. I don't know exactly how many years ago. This is, I think, nine or eight or nine or ten years ago. And she told me that they had a memorial service upcoming, um, something they've done for the last number of years, where once a year on the fourth floor of the hospital, they knock down all the dividers and turn it into this big auditorium, really, and they have a memorial service dedicated to all the children attached to the children's hospital in some way mm-hmm. that had passed away the previous year. 
And so they've done that for a few years. And she said, you know, you guys, meaning you emergency people, you guys are never there. And I said, well, you know, when we lose kids in the emergency department, it doesn't happen very often. It's catastrophic when it happens. For those of us who preside, we never forget any of those experiences Mm -hmm. because they're so indelibly etched into our, our memories. But we don't have a relationship with those families before those kids pass away. If a child comes in an anaphylactic shock and then dies, you know, I, I meet that kid on the trauma bay table. And, you know, if a child like that passes away, you know, after that horrific interlude mm-hmm. of a couple of hours, maybe, then it's over. And those families, you don't, you, you know them for that short window. And so it's a totally different thing. The memorial service generally is for doctors and nurses, the families, extended families, people who have developed a relationship and they come together to remember and to recollect. You know, the nurses, uh, I'm sure with Emma, some Mm -hmm. of the nurses became so attached to that little girl while she was here and the doctors as well that, you know, took care of her longitudinally, they'd be so attached. And it's true for all of these kids. Mm -hmm. So much emotion and energy and love invested. And it's a bit different for the emergency scene right but she said you know that aside um you know every year we have a physician who addresses the assembled people that come to this service and i think it would be great if you would do it (laughs) to which i said (laughs) thanks but no thanks yeah but as these things typically go in the end you know with, with a bit of arm twisting i spoke to that assembly of parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters and doctors and nurses. And it was hands down the most difficult talk that I ever had mm-hmm. to put together. Because really, again, to what we were talking about before, you don't know what to say. Yeah. And I didn't really at first know what to say. And then even when I, you know, you do put together some remarks, I'm, you know, I'm almost like blowing smoke because again, as a parent who has never lost a child, how could I possibly know? How could I possibly know? And so I said that. But one of the things I said, and I'm curious as to your thoughts about this, one of the things that I said was that I don't know this for sure, but I can theorize, I suppose, that for those of you who had a child like Emma from the age of two months until nine months, or if you had your son from the age of five, up until the age of five, mm-hmm or you lost your daughter at the age of 17, regardless of how long you had with your child, I think it's true that none of you would give any of that time back. You wouldn't give any of that time back. You had Emma for nine months. Those nine months have played, I think, for, mm-hmm. for you and your husband and your family, such a profound and positive impact. Absolutely, and I life. wouldn't change that for anything um you know if i knew in advance that this is what we would have had to go through um i i wouldn't have changed that fact you know of having that time with her um because she has changed all of our lives in a positive way um for my children for my husband myself anyone that knew emma i feel yeah um that she's had an impact on their life yeah a positive Um, you mentioned to me when um we met uh, last, um, this, what, I, what I took away from uh, our meeting was this powerful story that you shared with <laughs> me, if you don't mind sharing it again, around 
uh, around the uh, the stuffed bunny that right. someone left at Little Emma's crib. I think close to the time that she was, yeah, uh, end of the time that she was here. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that. Sure. Yeah. It was about a month before she passed, and I had just left the room briefly to go to the washroom and came back, and a an anonymous person had tied a little. Um, a a white stuffed bunny on the side of her crib and it was the kind that you pull down and then it plays a lullaby and then shrinks back up again and um and it had a little note attached to it and it just said um emma um, a little bunny that bounces back just like emma and uh and that was um such a a powerful thing for us and that became kind of our um our symbol of Emma as we went on was this little white bunny. And, and I think too, one of her favorite things that she could hold on to in, when she was in the hospital was a little bunny and she held on to it by the ears. And so, um, we just kind of kept with that, you know, symbol of, uh, using a bunny for Emma. And then when she had passed, we just wanted to do something for our boys to, just get them to escape from all of decompress and, exactly yeah. from all of the um, the trauma and the stress that they have had to experience um, with it, and so we took them to Disneyland and to um, Sea World, and we started our trip at Sea World, and when we were there, um, there was this little bunny, that a real bunny, that baby bunny that we saw hopping along just as we were going into the park. And in the as, midst of all of those in people. the midst of all those people and, and and all the cement and concrete and everything else that's there was this little baby bunny. And as we went throughout the day in the park, we kept seeing this little baby bunny. And for us that was Emma's with us and she'll always be with us. Amazing. And that she was there. And later that day when we left the park and my one son had to go to the washroom, so my husband took him. And it was starting to get chilly out. And so I took my other son into this one store that was full of glassware and trinkets and things. And I just thought, don't touch anything. Just let's stay right by the door and don't touch anything while we're waiting. Um, But then my was drawn to a shelf that had some, um, it was a little box with some little stuffed animals in it. And I went straight over there and there was a little pink bunny in there. And on the tag, it just said, hello, my name is Emma Bunny. And so that has resonated with us. And um, for me, it gives me comfort in thinking she's always around us, that she's always, if you are open to it, you will see signs that that your loved ones are close by. Yeah, so much mystery around this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, people that claim to know, you know, exactly how things are after someone passes, you know, there's so many... Uh, groups and creeds and religions and so yeah. on that really do claim to know and perhaps some of them are right or maybe one of them is right but I think there's just so much mystery yeah and as you say for us to be open to what comes after mm-hmm. you know these stories like this it's it, it it's so powerful and, uh, and I think you said that the you know the the little bunny theme has cropped up here and there over it the has. years it has and and um I think because we've opened our minds to it, and so we we see little um, signs like this constantly. Yeah. Um, Emma's never far in our thoughts. She's always right with us. Yeah. Um, we think about her every day. 
Um, and so having these little things that can, um, what some people may call a coincidence, yeah. but for us, we call it a sign that she'd be 23 um, years old or 24 she'd be 23, years old. 23. Yeah. Yeah. yeah turning today. 24 in May. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I want to uh, just pivot, uh, related to what you and I have just talked about with regard to, you know, with the aftermath and then, you know, uh, going with your family to California, to San Diego, I think you went mm-hmm. first and then to Disneyland. Um, but in the aftermath of losing a child, it's so difficult for families. It's, uh, it can cause such rupture within a family. And, you know, at least from my vantage point, understandably so. The divorce rate for mm-hmm. couples after you lose one of your children goes up significantly. And so uh, I can imagine that there was difficulty for you and your husband and your family as well. And yet, you know, you're sitting here this morning speaking to me with such Mm -hmm. wisdom and such grace, and your family has remained together. And I think you would say more cohesive and really life experience enlarged and bettered by your experience with Emma. So how how is it that you were able to navigate through that, whereas other families hit the rocks and rupture and aren't okay? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. And I mean, for us, it was really important that um, we involved our children in um, what was happening and that we were honest with them, um, not, you know, using the, the words that are appropriate at the time developmentally for the, the ages that they were, but we have this um, thought sometimes that we need to overprotect our yeah. children. And we didn't do that. We, you know, they saw the different things that Emma went through, but it was how we reacted to it, that we were, um, we tried to handle it in a way that didn't scare them, in a way that um, made them want to still be there and to spend time with her and get to know her. Um, And when she passed, um, same thing. We, you know, one of the hardest things is to talk to your children about death and to talk, especially when it's a sibling. And we know we, we will inevitably have those conversations, whether it's a grandparent or something that they will have to experience. Death is part of life. But um, so having that conversation and them to say, well, what happens to her now? And so we talked about burial and cremation. And my older son um, really fell apart at the thought of cremation. Yeah. And he just was promised me you will never do that to yeah. Emma. And that helped us in our decision of what to do. It was like, no, he's part of the family. He is his, um, his thoughts matter. And this is really important to him. So this is what we're going to do. They helped us with planning the service, which for us was just immediate family. Um, we had many people come to us and say, you know, if you opened it up, you'd have many people there, um, from the hospital, from families and friends. And I said, I know. But this is, we've had many strangers come in and out of her life yeah. the whole time. This is just our time now. Yes. And so it was immediate family. And as you know, at the children's, there's a lot of stuffed animals, a lot of teddy bears that the children get yeah. um, through bingos, through just donations and all of it. And Emma had a crib just full of stuffed animals. And 
our boys came up with the idea of why don't we give one to everyone that comes? Wow. And so that's what we did. And that was their, it gave them a, a new focus. Um, so we, they made little hearts because the some of the stuffies that she had, those Thai beanie babies with the little red heart on them, she would hold the heart. Um, and so that became another symbol for us was the little red heart for these. And so the boys made little red hearts and they attached them to each the, of the stuffed animals, and they gave thought on who should get what. Um, you know, that um, that my parents were from uh, the moose capital of the world in Saskatchewan is what yeah. the name of their town was, and there's this little Thai beanie baby stuffed moose that had to go to grandpa. Yeah. And so that, you know, they, they thought through all of these things. Um, the uh, The largest one, which was several feet tall, um, went to my nephew, who was born uh, two weeks after Emma was born. Yeah. And uh, so we he got the biggest one. And just to divert a little bit to build on that story, um, on his, when he graduated from high school, um, you know, they often have you bring something with you to take a photo of um, that's important. So if you're on the football team, you bring the football or those kind of things. Um, and he brought that bear because he knew we didn't have a grad picture of Emma. We wouldn't have one. Yeah. They would have graduated in the same year, and he had a picture of him. So there's this 17-year-old young man with a giant teddy bear that he's taking to school for his photo, and it didn't matter what other people thought. This was important to him yeah. um, to have that, to do that for us. In so many ways, Emma lives on. She does. Which reminds me, you know, I was struck by a phrase you used a couple of minutes ago, you know, death is part of life. And I was listening some time ago to a gentleman um, who had lost his, I think, 17 or 18-year-old son. Maybe I don't have the age completely accurate, but uh, who had appendicitis and then a perforated appendix and then septic shock. And the son unbelievably passed away. Mm. And the, you know, the, the... the shock and yeah. all of that, of course, but the for him too, you know, now years on, um, the wisdom that has come through that experience. And one of the things that he said that really struck me, he said that, you know, death isn't the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth. But he said, my son lives on. Mm-hmm. He lives on in all of us who yeah. knew him, who loved him. We carry him with us and Speaks right. to exactly what you're speaking about. Yeah, yeah. For your husband and yourself, mm-hmm. uh, in the direct aftermath, that must have been so difficult. It, it was very difficult, and and it took um, a lot of time in talking with the social worker at the hospital and realizing that men and women grieve so differently. Yes. And that was sort of the the start of me trying to make sense out of the differences of how we were going through it. Um, if there's a plus side to anything, um, with having a diagnosis like that and having those seven months in hospital, we, the moment you get that diagnosis, you're starting your stages of grief and you're that grieving process. And we thankfully had such a support system there while we are working through those stages. So by the time we get to her passing, we've already worked through many 
of those stages of the anger and the, you know, um, and so we've had that strong support system right there, um, which is so different than someone that's gone through an immediate um, tragic accident um, where bang, it's, it's all on you right then. And, um, you know, you have a lot of attention at the very beginning and then that fades and now you're left to deal with it on your own. And um, that's only what I can think of, you know, that helped us. Um, and also with involving our children and realizing again that men and women grieve differently, it was looking that we all need to find our own way forward, yes. that that may not be the same. Yeah. What my way forward is, is not going to be the same as my husband's. It's not going to be the same as my older son. It's not going to be the same as the younger. Um, I know for my older son, for example, for him, um, Emma's growing up in heaven. And yeah. so, oh yeah, she's 23 now. She must be doing this. Yeah. Um, and he would be thinking that all the time. My younger one, she's nine months and I'll always be nine months. Yeah. Um, and so that was, um, again, looking at how we all deal with things. And on her birthday, we would go out and, and buy birthday presents for her. That was something that they wanted to do. So we'd buy presents for one son. He's buying something older every year for for the other one it's always a nine month old gift and those we would give you know to donate to the children's hospital or or whatever um but again it was something that they found um helped them through the grieving process and i think it's important that we all look at how individuals process things and grieve and like i say we all have our our way forward and we need to find out what that is and and go with it and it doesn't matter if someone else agrees with you or doesn't or has that same way um it's what works for you there's a there's a really powerful phrase um i follow uh, tangentially i follow uh, there's a business guy that i follow of his podcast a guy named uh, scott galloway and he's a very insightful guy in business but he also is a, a real thought leader i really enjoy listening to him he has a lot of interesting insights about life and he had a guest on once and they were talking about something like this mm-hmm. and i don't know if it was scott or his guest that said that grief really is most best understood as love continued mm-hmm. We wouldn't have grief if we didn't have the gift of that love in the first place. And that has always stuck with me. Such right. a um, powerful way to, to put it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Cheryl, thank you so much. I, I, I can't imagine, again, how difficult it must yeah. be for you to revisit these emotions. But on the other hand, I can see how, um, how much you en- really enjoy talking about little Emma. Well, and, and I know that it was, um, you had expressed that it was difficult for you to approach me about Very this because so. it is a, yeah. um, such a traumatic experience that happened. But like you say, for myself, I love talking about Emma and it's refreshing to me to know that others are remembering her too. Yeah. And to know that after all these years, you remembered Emma, um, that, um, speaks volumes to me. So again, th- thank you so much for Great. coming here today to speak with me about yeah. this. Uh, I appreciate it so much, and I think it's a conversation that can be hugely impactful and helpful to not just those in the parent community, but to the community at large. So thank you again. Thank you for having me and for remembering Emma. I trust you found the story of little Emma as profound, as inspiring, and uplifting as I did. 
Uh, as those who know me know full well, I've written about this and spoken in public um, more than a few times uh, about this poem from Edwin Markham titled uh, Victory in Defeat, uh, one of my favorite poems. Uh, the final three lines go like this. Only the soul that knows the mighty grief can know the mighty rapture. Sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. And so it is. Emma was here for only a short time, and yet she lives on. And undoubtedly, without question, she stretched out spaces in her family's hearts for joy. That's all for today. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. A summary of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Please support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with a Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.